We are still going to trail the Hind matter, so we will proceed with Robert Jones. Commissioners, uh, my name is Jonathan Kirschbaum. I'm here to represent Mr. Jones, Robert Jones. Mr. Jones is the exceptional candidate to have his sentence commuted to life with the possibility of parole with immediate eligibility. The single most extraordinary aspect of his candidacy is the support that he's received from correctional officers over the years. A recurring theme from these officers is that Mr. Jones is a peaceful and good man. And in the support letter that I provide, we sent in uh, to the board, I documented what was in their letters. But I actually, for today, wanted to quote from the Associate Warden's report, because this is something I hadn't seen when I sent in my letter. And this is what is said in the report. During his 37 years incarcerated, Robert Jones has not been involved in a single violent episode. On the contrary, he's been a non-problematic inmate that staff characterized as peaceful, humble, and who works to de-escalate potentially violent situations. There are documented episodes where his actions have probably saved the lives of correctional officers that supervised him or other staff. One of these was during a riot in a housing unit where another inmate managed to obtain a weapon and induce all of the other inmates, with the exception of Jones, to participate in destroying the unit. So Mr. Jones has a documented history of de-escalating violent situations. He has been um, a mentor for younger inmates. And he wins people's trust and admiration through respect. Respect for oneself, respect for each other, and respect for your environment. And then there's the story of how Mr. Jones saved Officer Stevens' life. And Officer Stevens, we spoke to him um, recently, and he has now sworn that, yes, this actually happened. Mr. Jones physically placed himself in front of an inmate who had a shank in order to protect the life of Officer Stevens. I recently asked Mr. Jones why he did it. He said that everyone's life mattered and they all matter equally. He did what he did to protect a life because that life mattered. And that is the essence of the man sitting before you today. He has a good, generous heart and values life above all else. He is remorseful for what happened many, many years ago, and he takes full responsibility for his actions. He has undergone a complete transformation, and I don't think that there is a single moment in his life that changed him. His good heart and peaceful nature appears to be something that grew organically from somewhere inside of him. But beyond the officer's report, I would like to focus on the compelling letter that we uh, have submitted from Dr. Harrison, which is included in the supplemental material. She has worked very closely with Mr. Jones as part of the True Grit program. She describes him as an extremely positive influence on other prisoners. In particular, she noted how he had used his musical skills to help his fellow inmates. There's really no wonder that she would recommend in the strongest possible terms, and I'm quoting this, she said in the strongest possible terms that the board grant Mr. Jones' request. And we also think the report from Dr. Masters is highly persuasive. This was the one that was submitted 
the last time he came before the board back in 1989. Dr. Master, as was indicated at that last uh, pardons board hearing, uh, was a highly respected doctor. I don't, I'm not sure if he's still practicing anymore. Um, and his assessment was that Mr. Jones was not a danger to the public. With 25 years of perspective from the time of that report, we can see the wisdom of that assessment. Mr. Jones is now going on almost 40 years in custody without a violent incident in prison. In fact, he has de-escalated volatile situations and protected life. Mr. Jones has also worked hard to improve himself despite serious obstacles. Uh, he has significant intellectual disabilities. Nevertheless, he has worked extremely hard to overcome them. He has remained in school and done a significant amount of programming. We provided all of the certificates, all of the uh, achievements in, in our packet of materials. And it's not just himself that he sought to improve, but the lives of those around him as well. He gives back to his prison community, particularly with his music. And he's also remained a part of other people's lives outside of prison. He has a loving wife, Ineta, who despite her own physical limitations, uh, is here today. Um, she, uh, she provides him with a deep amount of support. Um, it would be where he would, he would obviously move in with her. Um, as you can see, Mr. Uh, Mr. Jones was brought in in a wheelchair. He has two bad hips, and so he's currently confined to a wheelchair, and that's probably how it's going to be for a while. Um, Anita's also in a wheelchair, so her house is wheelchair accessible. It would be a place where he would be able to stay. Um, he has also provided a great deal of love and support to both his own children and Inetta's children, uh, who do view, that, view him as their father. Uh, none of the children could be here today. They all live in different states. I, I think they're in Idaho and Mississippi, um, and Inetta actually told them not to spend the money to come, which is fine. Um, and uh, Inetta's children's children also treat him as their grandfather. And I've known Mr. Jones for three years now. And what has struck me the most in those three years is how completely unsolicited I've received phone calls from people, people that knew him in prison, um, just to gush about the impact that he's had on their lives. And everything that I've heard from these letters and from straight from people's mouths is that Mr. Jones is a peaceful, good man who has touched the lives of those around him. As Officer Wood put it in his letter, Mr. Jones is special. Now, I'd like to turn to the negative information in the packet, namely the interim director's assessment and the DA office's letter. Um, both of them make the same recommendation for the same reason, uh, no commutation based on the criminal history of violence before he was incarcerated. Um, it, I have to be honest say that we were very disappointed in uh, the interim director's uh, recommendation. Um, all the assessments that we've seen and all the assessments that are here in the materials have been positive. Um, we would think that Mr. Jones is the type of inmate that the Department of Corrections would be proud of, somebody who has saved the lives of officers. Um, he has made Nevada prisons a better place for those who are fortunate enough to have known him. And we obviously object, or we, we object to the DA's, office, the DA's letter and recommendation saying that because of his prior criminal history, um, he currently poses a danger to society. Um, we just don't think that this man sitting here today poses a danger to society. Um, we don't think that the criminal history, although there were violent incidents, really gives a complete picture of this man sitting here today. 
Certainly the prior criminal history is relevant. It's a relevant factor for this board to consider. It's, it is an important factor to determine whether Mr. Jones is worthy of mercy. But we believe that that criminal history does not preclude mercy here. Undeniably, he committed violent acts back then in the 60s and 70s. But I do believe there's that context for it. Mr. Jones was clearly in a downward spiral back then, and alcohol definitely played a role. But even as the Nevada Supreme Court noted in its opinion vacating the death penalty in his case, it all started after that incident in Mississippi when the police, off when the police tried to set him on fire. It's hard to value life, either your own or those around you, when an agent of the state shows such little value for life. But Mr. Jones now is a changed man. He, value all, he values all of the lives of the people around him, including those who work for the state. It's why he would put his own life in jeopardy to protect the lives of an officer. It's why he gives so much back to the prison community to enrich the lives of his fellow inmates. We believe that Mr. Jones is the extraordinary case that is worthy of mercy. He deserves a chance to prove to the parole board that he has undergone a complete transformation and rehabilitation and should be given a chance to spend his twilight years with his family. Thank you, Mr. Kirschbaum. Uh, does that complete your presentation? It, it does, Ron. It's coming. Part of your presentation was stating that the interim director had made his um, recommendation based solely on the violent history of Mr. Jones. It also bases it on the severity of the offense. And you haven't really commented on that. Um, no, I'm not going to dispute how he is programmed. I'm not going to dispute um, his heroic action, frankly, in terms of saving the correctional officer. But we have an extremely violent offense here. We have essentially an unprovoked execution of a man uh, who was shot in the temple. And uh, I'd like to get some comments sure. from you on that. Sure, Adam. Mm -hmm. I, I, sure. Uh, I, I wouldn't describe it as unprovoked. It was, it was a barroom confrontation as um, it was they were engaged in an argument and um, Mr. Jones was that there was a significant amount of evidence at his trial that he was extremely intoxicated. Um, DA's office said that there was a witness who worked at the bar who said he wasn't intoxicated, but there was witnesses that saw him drink a pint of vodka down the whole thing within 15 to 20 minutes of when this happened. And there was also testimony that um, he had been drinking for hours and hours and hours before this, and also that there were independent witnesses afterwards that saw that he was intoxicated. So it's not an excuse for any of this, but we do believe that it impacts upon the behavior, the intent. Um, but there's, he takes full responsibility for it. He <coughs> is remorseful for it. Um, we just believe that at this point, um, he has gone, undergone this complete transformation where he values life. And that type of incident just wouldn't happen this, this man sitting here today just would not commit that type of crime. Justice Perrigan. If I may, uh, now this started out originally as a death case, correct? He was convicted and sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. uh, the Supreme Court in, uh, I believe, 1987, is that uh, mm -hmm. correct here, sent it back for, and I didn't pull the case, so I don't know what the reason it was sent back for resentencing was. Mm -hmm. Then there was a stipulation um, rather than death, that uh, he stipulated to life without. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So 
I do believe that the context of how that stipulation happened is relevant. In that decision, the Nevada Supreme Court indicated that this was not the type of case where the death penalty was usually imposed and explained that these barroom confrontations, they went through the history of the death penalty in the state of Nevada and said this was not the type of case where the death penalty is usually imposed. So sending a pretty clear message that state, you know, you might want to reconsider the death penalty here, going after the death penalty, but the state did. So Mr. Jones was gearing up for the next penalty phase and they were getting actually more mitigation evidence. We have from his prior counsel's files, we have seen that they were about to put on even more mitigation. But then his attorney told him that they've offered life without parole, you should stick to it because it means that you will be out in 15 years. Now, I don't know why his attorney would say that. I mean, I think that maybe it was a different time. I don't know. Maybe the pardons board was commuting every sentence life without parole. I find that hard to believe, but we have it in writing. That's what his lawyer said to him. And it's troubling to me that Mr. Jones was facing the death penalty. In today's world, there's no way he would face the death penalty, not just for the circumstances of the crime, but based on his intellectual disability. And he was put in a position where his attorney was convincing him to stick to life without based on misguided information. So I do believe that the circumstances back then as to what happened with the death penalty and how it being on the table when it most likely shouldn't have been, and then his attorney giving him that bad advice, it does mean that while death was imposed originally the second time through in 1987 when there was going to be the second penalty phase, it was never really, there wasn't really an assessment of whether life without parole was the appropriate sentence here. Other questions? Again, Counselor, you know, the district attorneys you alluded to in your letters indicating they feel if Mr. Jones is released, he's still a threat to the community and all like that. There was that incident about biting the police officer's ear and biting off part of his ear, and I realize there might have been other circumstances taking place, but how can you, how do you feel comfortable recommending to us that if we agreed and granted Mr. Jones' relief that he wouldn't be a threat to the community and wouldn't have a possible incident? And I think I'm concerned because he testified saying he was drunk, he didn't understand about the shooting, but as the governor pointed out, he stuck it in his temple and went throughout the man's ear, you know, so it's pretty serious, and if you're drinking, it seems, you know, maybe you'd have trouble even holding the gun straight, you know, doing that, but what's your thoughts on that, that we wouldn't have to worry about this down the road? I think that going on almost 40 years of nonviolent behavior in prison, I think is probably the best indication. I mean, as the associate warden's report indicated, I mean, there was plenty of opportunities for him to have participated in violent acts. I mean, his whole unit was participating, and even just as a matter of, you know, group think, he just didn't participate because he didn't believe in the violent conduct. And, you know, we submitted these correctional officers' letters because they're the ones who have been around him, and they're the ones who describe his peaceful nature. I mean, I believe Officer Wood, in his most recent letter that we concluded in the supplemental material, 
wanted to specifically address that type of concern where he said, you know, he understands that, the, that the, it's, um, you know, it would be difficult for the board in this type of situation when it's been a violent crime. But he, he, he said that he can assure the board, based on his experience with inmates for years, that Mr. Jones is not a threat. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Mr. Jones wish to make a statement. What do you say? Would you like to make a statement? Yeah, I would like. I would like to thank the pardon board for seeing me, and foremost, I would like to give my regards to the maps, brothers to the Brown family. So sorry what happened. If there's anything that I could do to change that, I would. That's a mistake that I made for drinking. Uh, excuse me. There's something that I can't never undo. trying to straighten this out and I'm still having a hard time with it. Uh, because I don't know what happened and when you don't know something you don't you don't you don't you just grab for straws and, and don't know which way to go with it. So I'm doing everything I could to straighten my life up to get right with all this because I done hurt my family plus my family. And it's Seems like I've, I just have to keep trying to get it together. I, I, from here, if I ain't got it now, I ain't gonna never get it. Because I done took every class that, that, that a man could take. And you have to forgive me. Because this is not easy, but I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. I've been places that a average person ain't been. I've prayed. If others tried to. Not make the mistakes I made, <clears throat> but I know if I want an opportunity, it will never happen with me again. Because I met somebody that's—I should say another warden—which is good for me, and it is really. 
it's a, it's a, it's something that I got together with myself and God. And I have to try to prove it to y'all that I have it together. And my family. And, and anything that I can do for the Brown family, I'm willing to do it. So, especially where I'm at. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Any questions from board members? Ms. Kirschbaum, is there anything else you wish to present? Not at this time. Is there a representative from the Clark County District Attorney's Office? Present. We do have a letter that is authored by Mr. Owens that's dated October 27, 2015. Are there members of the victim's family or any representatives associated with the victim who are here? Any further comments from board members? Not for them, but I have a question for Mr. Attorney General. Uh, Mr. McDaniel, I just wanted a little clarification on the, the, the disciplinary infractions in this gentleman's history. We've got page four or five. There have been 15 fractions, five of which have been major violations. I think as recent as 05. Do you mind just talking a little bit about that? Because I, I believe it was represented by the council that he had no infractions. Perhaps he was just emphasizing no, nothing violent. Uh, yes, it was. I said violent, or at least that's what I meant. Okay. <laughs> I have a list by chance. Or, or yes, Attorney General, I do have a list of the disciplinary fractions. Uh, they start, well, my list starts back uh, in 1994, um, and then goes where there was an uh, incident in 1994 where he was um, drug tested and found to have methamphetamine in his system. Um, uh, in 1999, uh, he had a, a hearing uh, in regards to... Um, having uh, contraband in his cell, basically. Um, the, uh, another uh, June 17, 1999, uh, was assigned. He was searched and found uh, some homemade alcohol in his cell. We call it Puno in, in prison system. Uh, he was found with four gallons of that in his cell. In uh, December 31, 1999, uh, he had, uh, was assigned with, uh, he was found with a search and found uh, with four packages of brown tar-like substance, which was later tested and turned out to be uh, brown heroin. Um, and then in 2000, uh, in April, March, in 2002, uh, we had, um, uh, he was searched and found with uh, marijuana uh, in his, one of his shoes. Um, and then the last one we have is in June 1st, 2010, 
he was he was found in possession of uh, some contraband and altered appliance in itself. That was all the major disputes. Any other questions from board members? <clears throat> just, uh, just uh, one point I wanted to make. Um, you indicated that uh, this offense occurred because you were intoxicated and you don't know what happened and you can't put it all together. Um, and uh, it's essentially what you stated. In the uh, district attorney's letter, there's some uh, uh, indication that um, um, after the murder and prior to the murder, there's uh, several statements attributed to you <coughs> that um, indicated you're a fairly violent individual. You weren't uh, uh, you indicated, I guess, uh, that at one point you were Hell's Angels. And uh, they killed people for nothing, and that uh, you used to kill little and uh, he used to kill little kids for no reason. Three weeks prior to uh, the murder, uh, you told someone that you could kill anybody. That killing wasn't anything to you. And that if anybody got in your way, you'd kill them. Is that were those statements attributed to you, and did any of that come out during the sentencing uh, aspect of this trial? Yeah, I. None of those statements uh, were allowed in at trial. Okay. And none of them came out at sentencing. So they were not used in order to um, aggravate his sentence that at all. That was going to be and, my question. You know, um, no context is provided for them here. What I do know from looking at um, Well, I assume it was trial, part of the sentencing hearing. It wasn't part of this incident. So it's not quite clear who they were directed at. And... Um, so they, it, they're kind of, the way that they were put here, kind of unmoored from context. I mean, there was not, they, I, I believe there were people that knew Jones that claimed that he said these. Um, it's not quite clear. But they didn't testify. They did not testify. And this and wasn't they, allowed in. They were not. They were not allowed in at trial. Okay. And then there was an immunity motion on that, and the judge said, no, they don't come in. Only in rebuttal, but I'm not quite sure they don't come in. And then uh, they were not brought out of sentencing. Okay, thank you. That answered my question. Mr. Chief Justice, um, we have a letter from uh, Mary Harrison um, where she has provided uh, professional psychologist and therapist work for Mr. Jones. Is that right? That's correct. She's part of the True Grit program. What's that? She runs the True Grit program. Yeah. Um, how long has she been uh, caring for him? About ten years. Mm -hmm. um, I know. I know her before she did the True Grip program. Okay. She got it. So, uh, yes. You knew her before True Grip. Yeah. I played at uh, one of her graduations down at the Southern Desert. That's been about. 13, 4, 15 years ago, I think. He's known her um, for a significant amount of time before he worked with her in the True Grit program, and then how long in the True Grit at this point? Well, about 
I think I was I met it again it, in True Grits. It was uh, two thousand six or seven. Okay, so seven. I'd say close to ten years that she's been working with him in True Grit. And prior to that time, uh, did he receive uh, psychology therapy services from uh, someone in the prison or an outside therapist? Well, I believe that um, he one time asked for psychological help because he was struggling learning, and they told him that you don't have a psychological issue, so you can't get we can't give you psychological. What isn't clear to me is what um, Miss Harrison is treating him for. Uh, I mean, I see that he's characterized by her as a geriatric prisoner. Mm -hmm. He's 69. I got one foot on 67 on the other on a banana peel, so that <laughs> I guess I could be classified as a geriatric prisoner too. Um, but um, what, what is it that he's been treated for uh, in the last 10 years of his incarceration? Well, I, I don't know specifically, um, but I do know that um, it, it's his involvement in the True Grit program is really, I think, just based on age and his physical health. So I think so that... So what, what are the... Has there been an evaluation of him? Maybe Mr. McDaniel can comment on this. Of a physical or a medical evaluation uh, as to what kind of um, uh, medical services will be needed by this individual in the next uh, three, four, five years? Dr. McDaniel? I, I don't have with me, Your Honor, his medical file. Uh, I mean, our, you know, physicals are done on a routine basis in the... Yeah. In the medical part, I don't, but I don't have that. I don't have that even accessible on my computer here. here. Okay. And uh, are these, is the therapy that's been done by Miss Harrison or perhaps others in the last 10 years related to his propensity toward violence? Well, Miss Harrison was, she's no longer works for the Department of Corrections, but she okay. was the person that was in charge of our True Grit program, uh -huh. which is not necessarily evaluation or treatment. It's it's a unit where we house uh, elderly, older inmates that that have physical limitations or have disabilities, so we can manage them within the system. So she she wasn't really a treating uh, a psychologist. Oh, she was just she managed that unit and assisted the medical department with any of their medical needs or uh, ongoing needs that they might have being in that category. Of Based on this letter and some other material, though, this is an inmate who is anticipated to have some medical needs that the prison will have to address in the near future. Is that right? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Uh, this is an individual who will have medical needs that the prison is going to have to address in the near future. I would believe, based on his age and, and time, that he probably has medical needs that are more than normal, more than the average inmate. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Has your client ever received psychological or psychiatric treatment for his anger or his... Uh
propensity to violence during the time he's been in prison? I don't believe that it's been any individualized therapy. I know he's done a lot of programming to address those types of issues. And I think in our list of the programs that he's been through, they do address that, um, if I can find the list. Um, but I don't think he's been through individual. I didn't see that in there. And the other thing is, if the board were to make him eligible for parole, have you thought, counsel, what is going to be the plan that would be presented to the parole board? Uh, I'm not talking about living with his spouse and sharing that area. I'm talking about what kind of support, what is the plan uh, that uh, uh, would address not only his needs, but also um, public safety questions? Well, I think that um, the most important plan for him, obviously, because he is confined to the wheelchair, is that he uh, is in, he'll be in the wheelchair accessible home. Um, He'll be living with Inetta and also Inetta's mother, who um, will be the ones that will be supporting him. Um, he does have skills to offer. He's a virtuoso musician, and he would like to use that in the same way he's using it now, in a therapeutic way, or to, at, to support church activities. He'll hopefully be able to hook up with a local church and be able to contribute his music in that way. Um, whether or not he can find employment, I mean, he, he does have the physical issues and so on. That probably will stand in the way of, of, of employment. But I do believe he's going to remain as active as possible, um, trying to play music, trying to uh, use the skills that he's using now in prison to help his fellow inmates in the same way he would do it out there. Mm -hmm. Why'd you jump in front of the guy with the shank? He said, why did you jump in front of the guy with the shank? <laughs> well, it was to save the officer and him. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, like I said, I didn't, I made a mistake, so I didn't want nobody else to make the same mistake. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, I could help anybody to keep from going there. That's what I did. Trying to pay back to what happened with me. So, that was the reason. If there's any other questions or discussion, um, I have a question. Counselors, I guess in '92 he had completed alcohol and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Can't quite tell if it was a course or how extensive it was. And then we have this history of methamphetamine, alcohol, heroin. Mm -hmm. um, is, can you speak to that and if there has there's any uh, certainty that this gentleman will not be heading down that path once free <coughs> and he was already doing it in prison? Mm -hmm. I, I, I do believe he's gone through the substance abuse program twice. I think he went through it again yeah. in 2009. Correct. Yeah, after, after the, dis the more recent disciplinary incidents in the, in the, between 1999 and 2002, he went through it again. Um, I mean, I, I think at this point in his life, um, I don't think that's something that he's interested in. I mean, he's um, it, he knows the mistakes that he's made. Um, he knows what the what alcohol and drugs can do to his life, and um, I think he genuinely is at the point where his only mission in life is to um, to 
support the people around him. All right. Um, if there are no further questions or comments, I guess I'll be frank. I'm not in a position, me personally, to be supportive of a motion for relief today based on the nature and severity of the crime. I don't know if anybody else, any other members have any questions or comments? So with in that, light of that, Governor, I'd move to deny. Justice Pickering has made a motion to deny. Is there a second? Second. Second by the Attorney General. Any questions or discussion on the motion? Secretary, please call the roll. Justice Pickering? Yes. Justice Gibbons? Yes. Justice Seda? Yes. Justice Cherry? No. Justice Douglas? Yes. Justice Perigary? Yes. Chief Justice Hardesty? No. Attorney General Waxel? This is a motion to deny, correct? Yes. Governor Sandoval? Yes. Motion passes. Thank you. Governor Sandoval, um, the folks we were expecting on the Hine case have not made it in yet. Do we have any indication of what their estimated time of arrival is? Not at this time, sir. They were supposed to land at 4 o'clock, but I'm, it looks like that may not have even happened. Does anybody have any contact information for them? Uh, yes, Ms. Dory with the Department of Corrections has been following it all day. And she indicates that they have not yet landed. They've landed, but they're yeah, so they're in that never, never land before getting off the plane and getting out of the airport. Well, I think we should get started, and uh, perhaps they'll make it here by the, by the end of the hearing. There is extensive um, letters in the file uh, presenting uh, the family members position but obviously I want to give them the opportunity to be heard and they're aware and they are going to rush as quickly as they can uh, any objection from board members to proceed with this matter or we can take a recess until they arrive no okay why don't we proceed um, with the hind matter please Thank you, Governor Locksalt. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you today, Governor Sandoval, Attorney General Locksalt, Chief Justice Hardesty, and the members of the Supreme Court for hearing this matter again today. My name is Christina Wildeveld, and I represent Jamie Hine. I am before this board today. Um, I, I have submitted a very extensive petition in advance. Yeah, and Ms. Wildeveld, I want to, I, I should have done this before you began, so I apologize for that. I, I, 
I think I can speak for this board. We're very familiar exactly. with the facts of this case. And, that's exactly and we've all had the opportunity, with the exception of the Attorney General of SEP, through the previous hearing, we've had the opportunity to read the record that is in here. So I hope that you will keep that in mind as part of your presentation. Exactly what I was going to say. Thank you, Governor. Um, my, my clients paid for the transcript, which has been transcribed and has been attached to the pardons agenda. So everyone here has had the opportunity to review what happened previously. And that, uh, you know, as everyone is aware here, the facts were very heated as to the rendition of facts between trial counsel, who was here last time, which was David Figler. Uh, David Figler, along with Michael Panzer out of California and David Chesnoff were the representatives of Jamie Hine in the litigation uh, of this matter. Um, I'm here today as her pardon attorney asking this board to now consider her for relief under NRS 209-3925, which is the Compassionate Relief Statute. We did not come before this board last time under Compassionate Relief. This time we are before this board because over the last two years, Jamie has suffered two extremely, extremely severe attacks in which the Department of Corrections did not have her medication available for her. As you're all aware, Jamie currently costs the state of Nevada over $450,000 a year in her medical expenses. She is, doing, she is currently taking two shots a day. That, that need may go up to three shots a day. Uh, the, the cost of her medical care will only get higher. She has had, I'm sorry, two shots a week. She currently has two shots a week. She could have up to three shots a week. Uh, but there were a couple of times prior, since our last pardons board appearance, in which she absolutely, the prison system, did not have her medication available for her, and her life was in jeopardy. Nobody ever contemplated a death sentence in this case. She has paid over 13 years for the crime of uh, being responsible for the death of Tim Herman. Tim Herman. Uh, she has served eight and a half of those years. She is eligible for parole in 2017. She expires in September of 2019. We stand before this board today asking for your, uh, this very honorable board to save the state of Nevada almost $2 million in her medical expenses. Should Jamie Hine be released, she will no longer be a burden on the state of Nevada. The family has found doctors to get her involved into uh, clinical trials which we submitted letters from her doctor, Dr. Joshua Jacobs in California. Uh, the family is in contact with the HEA, um, HAE Society, which is a hereditary angio edema society, who found doctors in the state of Nevada. If there was no recourse for allowing her to go into California to participate in the trials, we found doctors in the state of Nevada who would be willing to do the, conduct the clinical trials for Jamie in the state of Nevada. If she is released from prison, she will no longer be a burden on the state of Nevada. The prison will no longer be responsible for her medication. And that's why we are before your honors today. Because it is twice now since in the last couple of years that Jamie's life has been in jeopardy. And it has been me personally who has suffered with the phone calls and the worry that Jamie will die at any second should this medication not be given to her but also all the family members that are present. Can you all stand? Thank you. 
every single one of them suffers each time jamie is denied her medication because four of these people were present when their own mother died because they lived across the street from the hospital and her mother the mother throat swelled up and she couldn't get medication from across the street but yet the department of the department of corrections has i'm sorry to say this but i know because i know that they've worked very hard on her medical care but they have failed twice and jamie's almost died she's had her stomach swell her limbs swell her hands swell and this is an example of her lips swelling we don't have pictures of her stomach swelling we don't have pictures of her feet or her hands swelling or her genitals swelling but if any of those move into her throat jamie will immediately die and that's the position that she's been put in over fourth of july weekend my daughter was in the hospital with emergency appendicitis and i was dealing with jamie hines emergency medical issue as well jamie didn't have medication on july 4th she didn't have it on july 5th she didn't have it on july 6th she did she had it in the afternoon of july 7th i contacted the attorney general's office i worked with the attorney general's office the department of corrections we were on a minute to minute phone phone calls as to when that medication was going to arrive they have promised us before that they would have an emergency dose always available they haven't at this time we're asking your this honorable board to not consider and go back to the litigation of the facts in this case because the defense and the state are never going to agree on what happened that day. But I will point out that I have Rebecca Garrison present. Rebecca Garrison was the owner of the home. She was uh, Tim Herman's, for all intents and purposes, girlfriend, significant other. Uh, she is Janie Hines' aunt. She still stands before you today. You can't really see the damage that's been inflicted on her, but 13 years later, she is still damaged. She was a victim of Tim Herman's. He tried to drive her off a cliff before and kill her. She still stands battered and bruised by the violence that he. Ms. Wildenell, you can't say you're not going to retry the case and then bring this. And that's all I'm bringing to your attention, Your Honor. I know the district attorney attorney's office is present today. They were not present last time. They submitted a letter to the board. There is a lot of discrepancies between the district attorney's version of the events that happened. And the state and the defense version events of events. You had a letter that was submitted from uh, Mr. Chesnoff, who also disagrees with the state's version of events. And with that, your that I will not go into any more facts of it, but simply ask this board to consider the medical expense to the state of Nevada for Jamie Hine when there are other avenues of relief, and to consider Jamie's uh, behavior in prison and since she's been incarcerated over the last 13 years, what she's done with her life, and ask that to be the consideration today. Thank you, Ms. Wildeveld. Um, Mr. Mayor, or Director McDaniel, um, there's been assertions made with regard, or the basis for this application is a compassionate release due to the inavailability of the relevant drug here, and that Council's represented that there have been two occasions where that drug has not been available. I guess what I'd like from you is a, a statement as to those two occurrences as well as the availability of the drug uh, going forward. Yes, sir. Well, um, there, there were two occurrences which occurred. Um, the last one, uh, well, the, the information that we have is it happened on July the 4th. 
Um, on July the 5th, um, she did experience some swollen feet and right hand, slight, slight swelling in the feet. Um, it was not considered a life-threatening emergency and did not require transport to the hospital. Uh, on July 6th, uh, she continued to have swelling of the right hand and, and uh, swelling. On the 7th, uh, she received the medication on July 7th. It was administered to her at 2.30 p.m. On July the 8th, of course, she was reviewed by the doctor, and there was no medical issues, no throat swelling, no nausea, no shortness of breath. Uh, when that occurred, um, it occurred uh, because of a uh, computer malfunction in regards to the ordering of the drug that our department got from another location. And so they, there was a, a problem there, and that has been corrected. Um, on July 7th, a uh, preventive plan was initiated so that we could make sure that that never happened again, that we did not have any medication problems from that point forward, which we have been able to do. Uh, we, we developed a plan uh, that at the Florence McClure Correctional Center, where there's always the drug is now available there at all times, and, uh, and they're capable of, of, they even come up with the exact days that they give her the shots, exactly when and where they do that at. And then we have a, a backup plan in regards to having additional medication available if in case something happened, uh, a disaster or something occurred. We have several days dosage available at the institution where it can occur again. So as it stands today, um, there's an available supplier inventory adequately care uh, for Ms. Hyde? Yes, sir. That's on site? Yes, sir. <clears throat> and with all due respect, if I may, we were told that that was located 15 miles away. I have not been updated to say that there was any medication backup on site. But with also, with all due respect, we've been told that before. This was the previous time we were told that there will always be a medication, a backup medication on site. And there has not been. Mr. McDaniel, um. it's my understanding. I also have available in Las Vegas the warden of that facility, who was responsible for making sure that plan was put in place, and I also have our doctor, our medical director, Dr. Aranis, who could speak to to both of those issues if you would like, sir. I would like to hear from the warden. So, who's present in in Las Vegas? Warden Gentry is is present in Las Vegas. Yes. Good afternoon, sir. This is Brenda Joe Gentry, benefit, uh, representing Department of Corrections, Florence McClure Women's Correctional Center. If, at first, were you uh, the warden at the time of the incident on July 4? Correct, sir. All right, will you um, provide the board with um, a description of what happened that day? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Will you provide a description of what happened that day? on July 4th with regard to Ms. Hines' medication? Yes, I was advised on July 7th. I was not aware of it prior to July 7th. I was on annual leave. Um, on July 7th when I came to work, I was notified of the situation. I took immediate action, contacted the medical department, created the preventative um, action plan, 
got a hold of the medication from the NDOC pharmacy, um, worked with the pharmacy and our medical division at Florence McClure to create the action plan to include the emergency dosage of two vials uh, to be located at Florence McClure at all times. That also includes a month's supply as a regular refill where it's an automatic refill where before Florence McClure had to actually put in a prescription every 30 days before this incident. Once this incident occurred, I realized it, it's not beneficial having a medical department put in a refill prescription when it can automatically be done by the pharmacy. So we receive automatically once a month a 30-day supplies. On top of that, an emergency dosage supplies that is secured inside the medical department. I also realized that the distribution of the uh, medication was twice a week on Tuesdays and Saturdays in the evenings prior to July 7th at, for the convenience of the inmate Hine. I realized that was not beneficial, so we changed the schedule to be on Mondays and Fridays during normal business hours at 6.30 a.m., so there's always administration there. If there were a problem to arise with their medication, we can take care of it immediately on that day. So you have a 30-day supply on site? It is automatic refilled every 30 days. So there's not a 30-day supply at any given time there. It's automatically is, um, arrives at our institution every 30 days without having to do an order from our institution. At all times, we have a one-week supply at our institution, an emergency setup, four dosages, two vials um, for twice a week. Any board members have any questions of the warden? How do you pay for this? Um, do you have any idea? It goes through our um, business management office. So I personally don't pay for it. I didn't mean that. I meant if you knew the process that it goes through, there's been a representation that it's I am not, very I'm costly. I'm not sure. I would not be the correct person to provide you that information. I don't know. Perhaps, Justice Cherry, we have either the director or the medical director, did you say, was here as well? Yes, sir. Uh, medical director is in Las Vegas, Dr. Reynolds. Who is in the best position to respond to Justice Cherry's question as to how this is paid for? Well, I can I can address how it's paid for. I mean, we have a regular you know budget for in regards for medication through our pharmacy, and so it's ordered through through the medical budget and paid for through the through that process. Just like we buy any other medication. I recall seeing somewhere in the file, and I don't have it tabbed, that there is some type of discount that the prisons or corrections is receiving for this drug. In, the, in other words, it, it's still expensive, but it's somewhat less than it was. I'm not quite sure in regards to a discount. I can tell you exactly. I have the figures here of exactly what we, we pay for it, uh, what we paid for it in the last few years. But I, Governor, the doctor is the doctor is shaking his head no. Doctor, did you want to come forward and clarify this? If it's okay with you, Governor. Of course. And Doctor, would you state your name for this uh, record, please? Yes, Governor. Uh, my my name's uh, Romeo Aranas. Uh, I'm a doctor director for the Department of Corrections. And you were shaking your head. What? What's the uh, issue? Yeah, with regards to the discount, 
it only applies to hepatitis C or uh, HIV medications which are uh, uh, both through renowned, uh, they call the 340B program with the federal government. We don't get some kind of discount like for hepatitis C treatment which cost like uh, 88000 we get a $20,000 discount. But on this uh, particular medicine, we do not get that through that program. So it's coming from our medical budget. All right, and doctor, do you have any uh, comments or can you support the comments that were made by the warden with regard to the availability of the drug for the treatment of Ms. Hine? Yes, Governor. The, the medicine is available now at the facility which uh, is a weak supply and uh, the ordering is not uh, taking that long to, to get the supplies that, that the pharmacies would order. Will you say that last part again, please? The, the pharmacy can order the medication which would come in about a day or two. So just so I make sure that I understand, there is always a weak supply.